0: The Urban Broadcast Collective
1: brings together the best podcasts on cities
0: and urban life.
1: Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell.
2: Today, we're speaking with Doug... Chalamet, who is a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he's authored over 80 research articles and has taught insect taxonomy, behavioural ecology, humans and nature and other courses for over 30 years. One of his main research goals is to better understand the many ways that insects interact with plants and how such interactions determine the diversity of animal communities. We'll be talking with Doug today about the value of native plants and vegetation why we shouldn't be planting so much lawn in our suburbs and so much more. Welcome to the show, Doug. It's great to have you here.
3: Well, thanks very much, Jess. Just for full disclosure, I've actually been there in uh, Delaware for 42 years. Oh, <laughs> so, 42. Okay. Older than than you're letting on. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for that.
0: Doug, you've written several books, including Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Gardens. It's effectively a call for people to make individual contributions to grassroots, and no pun intended, to helping local ecosystems. Is that
3: sort of a, a fair summary? Yes, that's that's very accurate. You know, we have we have parks and we have preserves, and we're in the sixth great extinction event that the Earth has ever experienced. So obviously, they're not enough. Uh, I don't know about Australia, but I certainly know in in the, the U.S. most of the land is privately owned. So if we don't do conservation on private property, we're going to fail. And every bit of pri- conservation we do in private property helps conservation inside those parks and preserves. So who owns that land? It's it's you know it's private people like you and me. We've got a, 135 million acres of residential landscapes in this country. So just take away agriculture of all kinds. There's still a huge chunk of land that is privately owned, and that makes those private landowners important few people important parts of the the future of conservation. What they do on their property does matter, and that's what that book is all about. It sounds like there's a real education piece required
2: um, to, uh, I guess, inform residents on the importance of um, the the sorry their their ecological contribution. Um, particularly on that private land. So next question I wanted to ask you is sort of on that topic around um, gardening and how we see our backyards or front yards. It's very much a cultural one. So the typical suburban stereotype of neatly clipped gardens and exotic flowering plants. When did this take hold and how hard is that to shake out of our mentality and the way in which we live our lives?
3: Well, it's very hard to, to change that culture. They took hold hundreds of years ago. Um, that that uh, model of landscaping came from the aristocracy in Europe. And of course, you know, <clears throat> we we copied that, our own aristocracy, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all the founders of the country did their best to have the huge lawns. It was a status symbol. It showed that you did not have to farm every inch of your land. It showed that you had the labor or the sheep to be able to keep that that lawn in check. Uh, so everybody everybody wanted that. And then of course we invented the lawnmower that enabled everybody to have that. And then we invented marketing and all of the fertilizer companies and seed companies told us if we, we had to landscape that way or we were communists or some other n- nasty accusation. So it's very much part of our culture. If you don't have the perfect landscape, you're not doing your share uh, you're going to bring down the neighborhood, lower property values. And it's very difficult to change change that. It is changing. I mean, I've been talking about this for 20 years now, and I do see the needle moving. Um, but it also assumes that if you don't have a big lawn, it's going to be wild and messy. And that's not true. What I'm saying is reduce the area in lawn, not get rid of lawn. Lawn is still a, a cue for care. It shows that you get the culture. It's a perfect plant to walk on without killing it. Uh, but we've got 44 million acres of lawn. That's an area bigger than than all of New England and in our country. So, let's cut that area in half, uh, put the plants that actually run our ecosystems in that area, and then we can have functional ecosystems right at home.
2: It's funny, um, Doug, in Australia, in, in Victoria, where um, Pete and I are based, there was or there, there has been some ongoing research happening for a little while around the value of nature strips, which is sort of you know the strip of lawn generally, out the front of suburban houses. Um, and the research is around replanting the the nature strips to be um, Indigenous species of gardens and, and plants of various descriptions to essentially create these bee highways um, through the city. And um, I think it's gaining some traction in some of our local government areas, but, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of pushback to that, to that idea, because of the presentation of that, um, you know, then you've also got things like access. Like, how do you, how do people then get access to their houses if their if their nature strip is completely uh, consumed by indigenous planting and so forth? So it's it's a very interesting conversation and one that is ongoing in Australia.
3: Yeah, and it's certainly ongoing here as as well. Uh, you know, if we only focus on pollinators. So you, you mentioned bee highways. That's an interesting term. Um, that's part of the problem. We certainly need pollinators. Uh, but we insects are essential components of the food web as well. So once the plants are pollinated, they're capturing energy from the sun and turning it into food and then storing that in their leaves. If you don't get that energy from the plants to animals, you don't have any animals. And if you don't have any animals, you don't have any functional ecosystems. Well, it turns out that, that most vertebrates don't eat plants directly. Most vertebrates eat something that ate plants. It's usually an invertebrate and it's usually an insect and it's typically a caterpillar. So that makes caterpillars enormously important in terms of transferring energy from plants uh, up the food web. So not only do we need the plants to flower to help the pollinators, we need typically woody plants that generate a lot of caterpillars so that our birds can reproduce. It takes thousands of caterpillars to make one nest of of birds. uh, And people don't realize that. So there's all these connections. We want birds around. We think if we put a bird feeder out, everything's gonna be happy. Uh, But at least in North America, most 96% of our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects, not on seeds. So we need the plants to generate those insects or you lose an important component of the food web. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design transport and waste management ratio supports change through projects that shape cities neighborhoods and places for people see ratio.com.au for details
0: doug you've got a, a just uh, you've got a great you've regenerated a property and i understand that you've gone out and taken photos of different moths and butterflies on your property and um as an experiment at home, basically. Can you talk to that?
3: Yeah, we have 10 acres that was part of a farm that was broken up 20 years ago uh, into 10-acre lots. And it was a very old farm, been farmed over 300 years. The last thing they did was mow it for hay. So there was very little here uh, when we bought the property. And our goal was to put the plants back as best we could. Well, in that 20 years, my research has shown if you understand the number and diversity of moths, not butterflies, but moths that are in your food web. You have a very good index of how stable and how productive that food web is because it's moths that are generating those caterpillars that are that everything eats. So about five years ago, I, I made it a goal to try to take a picture of every species of moth that is now making a living on the 10 acres that we acquired. Uh, and I'm still at it, but I'm up to 1,201 1, species of moths so far that I have pictures of. I got a giant PowerPoint if you want to see them all. <laughs> uh, so what's interesting <laughs> about that is that conservation works. You put the plants back, the things that run the ecosystem will come back as well. And because of that, we've recorded 60, 61 species of birds that have bred on our property, not just flew by, but but bred. Um, and you know, we did that, we did it fairly quickly. I mean, it's been 20 years now, but it didn't take 20 years for it to, to take hold. Uh, and all we really did was plant a few native plants, um, and nature, nature did the rest. So I've heard people say, oh, this is too hard. You have to know too much. You don't have to know nearly as much as you have to know to use your iPhone. So, uh, I think we all can do it.
0: That That's a great point. We'll, and we'll come back to that research. But before we get on to the current days, Doug, many centuries, uh, when the early settlers, and I know it's true of Australia, and I think it's true of the States, when the early settlers established uh, in the new countries, they were thrilled to be able to establish old world plants in the new world. And I've seen various paintings of those. You've probably seen those as well. And can you can appreciate that feeling of, of bringing something from the old world to the new?
3: I can appreciate it, but it has caused enormous ecological problems. And it wasn't just the settlers; they did, and it was mostly plants that um, they they wanted to eat. You know, they brought um, garlic mustard and a number of other plants that are serious invasive species now. But they were they were part of their diets back then. Uh, but then we extended that into the idea that plants are just decorations, and we're going to decorate our yards with plants from all over the world. We'll choose the prettiest ones. And that's typically not the plant down the street. And, you know, we, we did that for more than 100 years. Uh, well, 85% of the serious invasive woody plants in this country are escapees from our garden, and they cover millions and millions and millions of, of acres. So we've created enormous problems with this idea that uh, you can put any plant you want in your property, not realizing it's not going to stay there. It's going to move around and displace the plants that do generate energy for the food web with plants that don't generate energy. That's the key. These plants from other countries, they, through photosynthesis, they create food too, but nothing can eat those plants. Our insects are unable to eat these plants from other continents because they don't have the adaptations necessary to get around those plant defenses. So the energy stays in those plants. And that's the end of the food web. These plants invade our natural areas and push out the, the native plants that do support the food web and you end up with a dead zone. And when you do that everywhere, it's a serious blow. No wonder we've just recorded uh, the loss of 3 billion breeding birds in in North America in the last 50 years. You're taking away their, their food.
2: And Doug, you, along with Michelle Alfandari, I think her name was, um, have Mm -hmm. established Homegrown National Park. Can you talk a little about why
3: the two of you did this and and what it is? Well, we did it because we talked about this idea of, of homeowners, property owners being the future of conservation. The problem is they don't know that. They don't know that humans and nature have to coexist. They think nature's happy someplace else. It isn't. Uh, And they think that humans and nature cannot coexist. So, you know, that that makes us dead in the water right there. So we created Homegrown National Park with the idea of using social media to get the message that you have a responsibility as a a member of planet Earth. You have a responsibility to conserving the ecosystems you depend on. And if you own property, you really have a, a responsibility to stewarding that property in a way that does support our ecosystems. Uh, So uh, we have this picture of the of the US actually we have Canada involved now. And what you do is you register where your property is, the location and then the amount of your property that you're going to be a good steward of. So we started out talking about lawn. We're going to we're going to reduce the area of lawn. Well, if you actually do reduce the area of lawn, how much did you reduce it by? You put that figure in there and then your little piece of your county will will light up. With a firefly, and you see who else in your county has joined Homegrown National Park. It's free. So there's there's really no reason not to do this. There are real ecological benefits to doing it, but it's there are also cultural benefits. We're, we are trying to change the culture from an adversarial relationship with nature to a collaborative one. Uh, and and we want to, you know, there's lots of resources on our website to tell people how they can go about doing this. Doesn't have to happen overnight. It doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, but you know, even if if you're a little old lady in an apartment and you're not going to actually do anything, you're going to vote. And how you vote is tremendously important in terms of resolving our environmental issues. So, uh, homegrown national park is as much about changing our culture as it is, is about changing the landscapes. Uh, we it's it's a grassroots approach to conservation. That all you have to worry about is what happens on your property. Because if you worry about the entire planet, you get depressed. Just fix your own property. And if everybody does that, we'll be in good shape.
0: Mm. And it's a fantastic website, uh, Doug, and we'll have links uh, in our episode notes. And okay. the the response uh, from people you know, as a general uh, overview, how have people, what, what are some of the stories you hear back? I mean, pr- presumably it's a momentum thing where if you see your neighbors doing it or someone down the street You get curious, uh, and you join. And uh, do you think people are just? Many people are just waiting for inspiration. Lots of questions there, Doug. Sorry.
3: Yeah. No. Well, that's that's exactly right. A lot of people recognize uh, that we need nature. They recognize that it's disappearing. Uh, They feel powerless. But when I say no, you're not powerless. There's lots of things you do. You can do. There's still the the barrier of standing out in the neighborhood you know they don't they don't want to buck the system they don't want to be criticized by their neighbors that's a huge barrier but when you see your neighbor doing it that barrier disappears Uh, so there's a threshold but enough people start doing it then you can join in and actually be part of the solution instead of wishing you were part of the solution and i do see that starting to happen um it's it's been a popular idea I, just, I saw figures today. I think we have eighty thousand acres recorded on Homegrown National Park, and what forty thousand members, something like that. Now we need millions, um, but we're headed in that direction, and, and we've only been around two years, so we're, we're we're pleased with the response. And and how do you advertise it, Doug? I give lots of talks <laughs> <laughs> and lots of podcasts. <laughs>
0: you well, you're a
3: good speaker, Doug, That's, and you're a very interesting guy. So um, oh well, thank I'm you. sure people want you. You know it's really, it really is word of mouth. We do have uh, uh, a guy who who does um, social media. He does oh uh, well, he doesn't do Facebook, but the, I don't see, I don't even do that stuff, but he's very good at it. Um, and so that has helped as well. He's done a couple of things that have gotten over a million hits, so that that has helped a lot and do people put signs in their gardens, Doug, to say that what they're doing? They can. Uh, we don't sell anything, but we do have a sign they can print off and make their own sign and then put it in their their yard. And that does help because it it um, you know what what people are looking for is evidence that what you're doing at home is is planned. It's part of a plan. It's not just you letting things go. And a sign says this is a this is now a nature preserve. That helps a lot. A people say, okay, I understand that. I, yeah, we got to help the pollinators. That's good. Um, so people are doing that and and it it is effective. And the website also has a lot of resources around,
2: um, I guess, to, to assist the home gardener around making changes. Has that been right. really helpful for people to, to I guess, inform and educate?
3: Yes, very much so, because the people we're trying to reach are the people who don't know anything about gardening. Um, they don't know we have a problem. We call them the non-choir. The choir is a, that's the group that invites me to talk all the time. Well, they already know most of this. It's the people who don't know it that we're trying to reach. So they need they need help. They need somebody to hold their hand, um, show them step by step how to do that. That's actually a, a book that I'm writing right now, addresses all the questions that I have gotten on email over the past number of years. A lot of them are good questions, things that I haven't written back in, in other books. So um, i'm I'm finishing that up. The object is to make make this transition as easy as possible because if it's not easy, people aren't going to do it
0: mm. and, and Doug, familiarity with indigenous plants and their particular requirements. Um, that's part of the process. People just aren't familiar with what's indigenous to their area. and how to look after it, not to over fertilize it, for example, not to over, I'm just saying these things as examples, but what's in your local patch? Is, is that
3: part of that as well? Yeah, it's a huge part of it. And we've created a tool that is on the National Wildlife Federation website and it's called native plant finder. So all you do is you put in your your zip code uh, and the, the top ranked Woody plants and top-ranked herbaceous plants for both caterpillars and pollinators uh, will pop up for your county. And we've got, I don't know how many counties we have, over 3,000 in this country. So what it does is it narrows down plant choice to a very small part of the country, which helps a lot. Uh, and, and that that website's used fairly, fairly heavily. The problem we have now is that the demand for native plants exceeds the supply. So there's, a, there's this transition point where uh, nurserymen are recognizing, hey, there really is a market for native plants, and they're starting to to grow them. But we're not quite there yet, <laughs> so some people have to be a little bit patient.
2: We we mentioned in the introduction and earlier in the discussion, Doug, this idea about reducing the extent of lawn area. Um, I was just reflecting before Australia went, or Victoria in particular, went through a really um, quite bad drought, probably what was it, Pete, 15, 20 years
0: ago now? It it went for 12 years, Doug. It was called the Great Millennial Drought. Yeah. We have have very bad droughts about every 30 years and um, the government brings in water restrictions. Is that that where you're leading on that one? Yeah, because that
2: that probably started It it
0: finished, uh, it started 1998 and finished about 1910 and then we had... Messy flood, flood stuck.
3: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, and, and
3: wildfires re- in there too. So,
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I was reflecting on um, where I grew up, which is um, sort of in the regional parts of uh, Victoria. And a lot of people actually uh, ripped out their lawns, um, particularly in their nature strips, and replaced it with stones, gravel, or even worse, the, um, the fake grass, which. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in my view is just horrific i there's nothing i hate more than fake grass <laughs> is is that something that you have seen in the states at all this this i guess replacement of grass with other things that are perhaps even worse than lawn um rather mm-hmm. than rather than implementing indigenous species and and garden
3: not as much, not as much. So the big push to uh, eliminate lawn is coming from the far west, California in particular, uh, because they've been in a mega drought as well, and and watering lawn in a desert situation just makes no sense. It's a terrible waste of water. So you get a three dollar per square foot rebate for every square foot of lawn that you replace, but not just with with you know plastic. You replace it with xeric adapted plants. Uh, so the object is to get the native plants that belong in a landscape like that uh, into the areas that we now have in line and, and that's what most people are doing now there are you know there are a lot of rocks and and, and gravel uh, but in many desert situations um that's kind of normal I mean <laughs> so we also want to get the plants in there for sure uh, but nobody's encouraging astroturf for you know that's so it, it happens but nobody's encouraging it I imagine
0: people who look at your website and and, and are interested will go the other way. Um, There was recently an article in the Wall Street Journal: "Neighbors Fight Over No Mo May." Uh, What in the world is happening in this place? That was the article, and you were quoted. You were a bit, and maybe we could just explain that No Mo May. Uh, It's something that's happening in the United Kingdom um doug we're the, we're the opposite so may here is sort of autumn getting into winter um right. so uh but uh, what i as i understand it uh no more may is just you leave your lawn for a month unmowed to allow growth and get the danny and i the long growth in the grass you're a bit skeptical of that um can you talk about that
3: <laughs> yeah um you know I, I appreciate the intent the intent is let's give part of our yard back to the the pollinators that need resources they need nectar and they need pollen but we have to be mindful of where they need to get this from first of all grass doesn't supply either one they're not getting pollen or nectar from from grass whether it's short or long uh, and most fertilizers in this country contain broadleaf herbicides. So when you apply, when you when you manage your lawn the way you're supposed to, you don't have any dandelions. You don't have any clover. You don't have anything that's going to help pollinators. So if you don't mow for a month, you'll have tall grass, but it's not going to help pollinators a bit. And if you have a terrible lawn and you've got lots of dandelions and lots of blooming plants and you don't mow it for a, a month, and then in June you do mow it it's like pulling the rug out from all the pollinator populations that you've created and saying, well, we're going to feed you for a month, but that's it. That's not, that's not how nature works. They they need food their entire uh, life cycle, which around here goes from April to at least the end of September. Uh, So, so, you know, the ecologically, it doesn't make any sense at all, but it's the right spirit. What I would like to encourage is no more areas. Where you never mow them and you actually replace the turf grass with the plants that are going to help the pollinators and they are going to support the food web by creating uh, caterpillars and that takes a little bit more thought it's not just a matter of putting the lawn mower away for for a month um so that those were my comments on no mow may i think people do it because it's fun to say you know <laughs> yeah, that'd be right <laughs> I just wanted to ask you about um quite a
2: subjective topic, which is attractiveness um in in the in the sense of talking, I guess, about the homegrown national park concept. Um, will will that mean less attractive gardens? and and again, as I said, this is going to be subjective, but I know Thanks. this has always been something that um, you know, it, it's always the pushback as to why we shouldn't have more indigenous plants and why people don't want to replace their gardens or their exotic gardens with indigenous and so forth. Do you have any thoughts
3: around that? I do. You know, our, our indigenous plants are used in Europe in formal gardens every day and they love them over there because there's something new They're They're non-native plants and they're, they're exciting decorations over there. So if we can use them formally over there, we can use them formally here as well. Um, this is one of the reasons I say we need to reduce the area of lawn, not replace it. Lawn is what we call a cue for care. If what you do the, is maintain the lawn you have, you keep it mowed, it's manicured, uh, which shows okay, I understand what the what the culture is. I'm not going to simply let things go to seed, but you use much less lawn, and you, and you line the garden, the uh, extra beds that you've created, you line your driveway and the sidewalk with uh, at least a mower's worth of of manicured lawn. And it really, it formalizes that landscape, even though you've put a whole lot more productive plants into your landscape. Um, There, I don't know how many pictures of U.S. yards you've seen, but having acres of lawn is common. And it's just a total, total waste. So we're reducing that area, but we're keeping lawn to accentuate the aesthetic value of, of what you have. Uh, so this is, this is a design challenge. We're not talking about the end of horticultural design. It's actually a new challenge rather than you know which new cultivar can we use? How can we design a, a landscape to be pretty and ecologically productive at the same time? If I were a horticulture designer, I'd, I'd be excited about that. That'd be a great challenge. And people would hire me because that's what people want. They, most people don't garden at all; they hire somebody. And we need a whole new team of ecological landscapers out there uh, that can just go and do do what the mow, blow, and go guys do right now—the lawn care industry. That's <laughs>
0: a great expression. Now we we do have that in uh, Doug here in Australia. We have a a lot of uh, landscapers who now oh. are heavily promoting uh, native. uh One gardens and, and and so that that is happening um I was I was just thinking about your whole concept Doug it, it's a great bottom-up approach to yeah. ecology it's not top-down it's not the government telling you what to do uh, or you're being compelled to do it you're it's a voluntary um as you said Grassroots but I wanted hey. to ask where well, the concept of homegrown National Park is is a residential uh, that's the that's who you're trying to promote it to. But have you thought of office parks and the industrial estates and and sort of getting some of the big corporates, uh, the big uh, real estate trusts and things
3: that own all these sites? Right.
0: Have you thought about that?
3: Was Yeah, absolutely. Next? Not only that, but uh, all the different houses of worship. You know, the Catholic Church is the biggest landowner in the world. Uh, So there's a lot of property that uh, corporations and and churches own. And yes, we definitely target them as well. Uh, And we're even going beyond that. We're targeting um, cropland, not to change the cropland itself, but the edges of the cropland. You know, it used to be what people called weeds, but that was milkweed. It was asters. It was goldenrod. It was all the things that supported the pollinators and the monarch in this country. It's all gone. And now it's grass. Uh, so that's the reason that the monarch has declined uh, to the point where it's now red listed. They've taken away all their resources for no reason at all. It doesn't increase crop yield at all. It's simply aesthetic. So we want to, we want to rebuild the meadow and prairie uh, habitats along the sides of roads in in agriculture, we want to put in what we call prairie strips, which are well-planted uh, pollinator strips right through the corn and soybean that are, um, they're oriented perpendicular to the flow of water off the land, so it intercepts any topsoil or extra nutrients fertilizers before it gets into the watershed. We want to, uh, we want to address rangeland. We've got 770 million acres of rangeland in this country. That's four and a half times the size of, of Texas. Well, you know, rangeland, grasslands, co-evolved with grazers. They always had grazers on them. So the concept of having Cows on your land is not bad in itself. It's having too many cows on your land and, and having them trample the, the waterways, the streams and the rivers that causes the ecological problems. So keep the cows out of the rivers, out of the streams, so that the, the plants belong that belong in those streams, the cottonwoods and the willows and other things can return. That's what supports the, the biodiversity in so much of our the acreage in this country. So these are these are relatively easy solutions to this biodiversity crisis. And it all starts with people recognizing that we have a biodiversity crisis and that they, on their own personal property, can actually make a difference in terms of of helping it.
0: Doug, we have land care in Australia, which does a lot of those things. What's the reaction been to from croppers, you know, farmers in the States, to that idea of getting the nature, nature corridors back uh, adjacent their land?
3: um you know it's only fairly recently and i would say recently the last 20 years that they got rid of all of their nature strips so they got rid of the the native plants on the verges and replaced it with with grass with lawn that now has to be mowed so now we're saying uh uh-uh, uh bad idea let's turn that right around again and it's a little slow on the on the uptake it's going to take the the uh, the most progressive farmers that we have to be role models. You know, they're they're working on it in Iowa for example. They've already converted a thousand miles worth of roadways to prairie systems uh, in in Iowa. So they're you know they're people that are being good role models. The research supporting how valuable these prairie strips are and it's it's government supported. You get CRP funding if you put one in it's very compelling. It reduces topsoil loss by 95%. It reduces pollution by 94%, something like that. Um, There's really no reason not to do it. So I think uh, it's going to catch on more quickly in the near future, Um, but it's not not commonplace yet.
2: Doug, our suburban areas in uh, in Victoria and in, in Australia have traditionally sort of been around that 750 square metre size. Um, but many of our new housing estates that are being rolled out now are more like in the order of, you know, 300 square metres, sometimes even smaller than that. And,
3: but-
0: and Jess, we should explain to our American listeners that we, we use square metres, not I right. think, oh, of course, square yes. feet. <laughs> I think you multiply by 10 to get to square feet, I think.
2: Yeah. So with, with very little garden area, obviously <laughs> with that size and generally the garden area is, um, uh, dominated, I guess in the front of the, of the house. or so at the, at the street level. So does the, does the homegrown national park concept work in those sorts of small places? Could it be applied in that setting?
3: Yes, it can. Uh, there's no doubt that it's not going to be as effective when most of the area is paved over. But 82% of us in this country live in cities. We can't just eliminate uh, all those people who want to help as well. Uh, And many of them live in apartment complexes or condos with very small gardening opportunities. So this is where container gardening comes in. Picture an apartment complex where everybody has a balcony. If everybody uh, can the productive container gardening. And that's another site on our website to tell them how to do that. Uh, It would take what, what looks like to a pollinator is a pile of bricks and turn it into a valuable resource right in the middle of the city and picture the entire city doing it that way. You know, a great model for a green city is uh, Singapore. So they have shown you can do it. You have to plan on it and you have to, you know, you have to make uh, dirt rather than, cement the default landscape so that you can actually put some plants there but it shows that you can have a a booming indus- or urban area that is also extremely green and the only reason we don't have that now is we didn't plan on it in the last 200 years but we can start the transition uh, and again it, I think it has started. And, and Doug any thoughts about new housing subdivisions?
0: Um, what should city planners be thinking about when setting the parameters for such estates in terms of Respecting and aiding ecosystems.
3: Well, right now we have uh, a system which is opposite of the way it ought to be. You have the developer come in, uh, and the he'll he'll landscape it, but typically, it's you know biased heavily towards non-native plants, big lawns, because that is the cheapest thing for him to do. Uh, and then the homeowner, if they want to turn that around, they've got to make a big investment and spend a lot of time and money doing it. Um, I'd rather have it the other way, where the, the developer puts in an ecologically functional landscape. It's, you know, certainly dominated by native plants. And then if the homeowner wants to revert it back, it's on them. They have to do it. But uh, And believe me, most people, they just go with what's there. So convincing um, regulations around how the original uh, landscape is developed will will take us a long way. Uh, and we are making progress in that way too. There's the National Wildlife Federation has has got some good relationships with, with some big developers and they're developed, they're they're building new developments that are model systems. Um, so I you know, I think 20 years from now, we can look back and say, Oh, I can't believe we used to do that. But I think it's going to move rapidly in the right direction.
2: Are there any other things that we should be doing then if we if we're thinking about increased population growth, which you know we're all experiencing in some form or another? about, I guess, how we retain and restore ecosystems. Is it possible to have both?
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you might throw the whole podcast out. But you know the idea that we can grow forever on this planet and, and with, still use that word sustainability is, is nonsense. We're already over the carrying capacity of the planet and nothing is sustainable unless we figure out how to um, live within the, the boundary limits of planet Earth. Um, so that goes counter to, uh, capitalistic, uh, economic systems, the, you know, perpetual growth, we can grow, but we can only grow as fast as the earth is growing. And that's not very fast. So, Mm. um, I I don't know that's people say, you know, how can you remain optimistic? I'm optimistic because I know we can turn it around, but only if in the long run, we control our population growth.
1: Mm.
0: Doug, we love dissenting voices on this program, so we won't, we won't can this uh, interview. Uh, just returning to the broader issues and the problems with invasive species, uh, Australia has many threats to the natural ecosystem, I'm sure shared by the states, and you, you mentioned you know, invasive plants. But one of our big problems is introduced animals, uh, particularly feral cats, rabbits mm-hmm. and foxes, And the feral cats are particularly bad predators. They kill many, many birds and small marsupials. Um, On the podcast, we previously suggested a levy on cat food to fight the problem. Any thoughts on that one?
3: I hadn't heard that as a suggestion, but it's a good one. (laughs) Uh, it's, It's very tough. You know, the cat lovers in this country are, they are real cat lovers. And if you talk about, keeping the cat indoors or or suggesting the cats are actually part of the problem. And by the way, they kill 3 billion birds in this country a year. Uh, you get death threats. These, these are serious people. Um, so yes, cats, rats, mm-hmm. uh, I do talk about moving plants around, but, we, but anything that is moved out of the ecosystem in which it evolved, means it is released from the natural controls. Mm-hmm. Typically its diseases are left behind, uh, and uh, you know, if you're an insect, like we've got a number of serious insect invasions here, they don't have their natural enemies, they don't have their parasitoids, their diseases, and their their predators, so they explode, they go crazy, and it's you know terrible. We're losing, uh, we've got the emerald ash borer here. You know, we've already lost billions, literally billions of ash trees, um, which 98 pre- species depend on. Uh, now we are making progress in biological control, but uh, you know the the gypsy moth, which used to be it used to be the gypsy moth, now it's the spongy moth, uh, has has killed you know, countless acres of of oaks, hemlock woolly adelgid is eliminating our hemlocks. These are serious serious problems. Uh, caused by insects that have been brought in and you know yeah Australia is the poster child for cane toads and and <laughs> other things that have been yeah brought we've got in. them we've got
0: camels we've got deer we've got all sorts of things here Doug um yeah, but the feral yeah. cats are, because they're ace predators um are just wiping out particularly the marsupials um yeah, yeah. very hard to do so all right we're gonna Jess we're gonna recommend we're gonna get uh, all sorts of hate mail, but I think we sh- whiskers, there should be a levy of five cents on every can of whiskers. food I, I,
2: I don't think we even need to ask, um, you know, if we're cat, cat or dog people. I think it's been pretty obvious. <laughs>
3: so, so, well, so you know, Doug, New Zealand, New Zealand's gotten serious about it. They want to get rid of all of them off the entire island and, you know, hats off to them. <laughs> and, and Doug, you, you mentioned biological control, but uh, are
0: you you're confident that there's, In in terms of dealing with the invasive species, the promise of tech or bio solutions to these problems?
3: Uh, You know, it has to be done properly. And of course, all the examples, and there are many of them, of biocontrol gone wrong where there were no regulations and people brought over things they shouldn't have, generalist predators. Um, You know, the cane toad was introduced to Australia to eat what, a a beetle in in your sugar cane? It doesn't even eat that beetle. I mean, you know, a little bit of research would have shown that was a ridiculous idea. So now we have, at least in this country, um, very serious regulations started in 1976 and there haven't been any uh, problems since then. You have to demonstrate in quarantine that whatever you're introducing is host specific. It's only going to attack the, the pest problem, whether it's a plant or whether it's another insect. That's a minimum of 10 years of research right there. Uh, And then, of course, you can introduce the the biocontrol agent. And more often than not, it doesn't take. Uh, So this it's certainly not a silver bullet, but but when it does work, it works so well. It self replicates. uh, And, you know, then you don't have to rely on the herbicides or the pesticides. Um, You don't lose the, you know, the valuable basis of your your food web. Uh, so there's a lot of pluses when biocontrol is done correctly, and I'm very confident that the way it happens, at least in the in the U.S. today, under quarantine, highly regulated, uh, is is good. Um, there are no no serious problems, um, and it's you know we have so few effective tools in our our ecological toolbox that to throw one out because the public is a little worried about it. No, I don't support that. You got to you got to demonstrate some real, real concerns, verifiable concerns. And since 1976, that hasn't happened. Biocontrol works.
0: Right. Can you just explain the difference before that. I'm sorry for jumping in, Jess.
3: Sure. Yeah. And that's that's right. You know the the media talks about the food chain all the time, and we picture a linear chain. Well, let's let's take a plant. Let's take an oak tree, uh, and let's consider the things that eat oaks. Well, in this country, it's over 950 species of caterpillars eat oaks. Now, for each one of those species of caterpillars, there's a number of species of predators and parasitoids that depend on them. So if you're drawing connections, you've got 950 lines coming out from your oak tree. And then you've got, let's say, 10 lines coming out from each of those 950 lines, and many of them... Uh, well, so many of those p- predators will eat several of the caterpillars and all of a sudden you get crisscrossing and it looks much more like a spider you take away one link of the chain the whole chain collapses one of the beauties of, of diversity is that there's redundancy you can lose a species without the entire system collapsing you don't want to lose any species it's better if you have them all but uh, there's redundancy in function uh, and that's the beauty of of a web. Each one of those, those uh, intersections of, of lines is called a node. And the more lines coming out of a node, the more stable it is.
0: We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
1: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now,
2: I just wanted to finish on one question um, around experience of nature. There's a lot of people who go through life um, who don't have really any experience or very limited experience of nature particularly in our modern cities how do you suggest that we get these people more involved and enjoying nature to therefore um, assist with this conversation of you know appreciation
3: Um, yeah that that challenge is getting harder and harder with the electronic age you know now everybody spends most of their day with their their phone or their screen and I think to to uh a great extent, he was correct. Most kids, unless they are scared by their parents, inherently like different forms of nature. They're fascinated with with uh, you know all kinds of little fuzzy things. Um, it's the shrieking mother who scares them and says, "This is this is terrible." Uh, so we, I, I think, we have got to change the media, which loves to uh, they love disasters. They love to hype everything we had an emergence of the periodic cicada uh, two years ago. It comes out once every 17 years. And the media carried on, you know, always oh, gonna be terrible, you should move. Uh, it's gonna drive you crazy and you'll kill your babies and all kinds of terrible negative things. But it was really just a fascinating biological phenomenon. So rather than going for, for sensationalism, we should be talking about the how wonderful it is to experience nature. And there's a lot of research that says just 15 minutes uh, interacting just with plants—you don't even have to see the animals. Will lower your blood pressure, reduce your stress hormone. Um, when you reduce stress, you do everything better. You learn better. You—you know—you're a nicer person. You're not as aggressive. All kinds of wonderful things happen when we are exposed to the natural world. So there are real benefits, and the problem is we've got to do it. It works best when you start when you're when you're young. And with everybody living in a city with an iPhone, it's a harder and harder uh, challenge these days. So,
0: ah, oh, Doug to be. Uh, I'm sure your your youth was uh, like mine without iPhones, and we experienced nature. And probably is that what started you off on the whole
3: on your journey? It is. It is. But I, you know, I have to say, I was born loving nature, and I can say that compared to my my siblings. I had a sister and I've got a, a brother. We were all in the same household. We had the same exposures, the same experience, but they weren't really born loving nature. They, you know, they never really took to it. So it, there was something inherent in me that just, it just was what really turned me on. Uh, so I get it that not everybody is like that, uh, but everybody, everybody needs nature, whether you like it or not, whether you're scared of it or not. Um, And because we all depend on functioning ecosystems, it's everybody's responsibility to keeping them that way. Whether you like it or not, you know, we don't, we have telephone poles here that hold up our electric wires. They're ugly as as sin, Uh, but everybody tolerates them because they know we need need them. So if you don't like nature, you still have to tolerate it because we absolutely need it.
0: Yeah. Fortunately, most people, most people embrace it. Don't they, Doug, when they're, that uh, They've got a, a chance now. We're moving on to podcast extra or culture corner, Doug. This is a uh, we ask our subject and we we give recommendations of something you've seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners, and it doesn't have
3: to be on topic. Well, <laughs> I don't think there's anybody better at at doing this, at exposing us, explaining it, and getting us to love nature than David Attenborough. Uh, and, of course, he recently uh, just finished, I hope it's not his last, but a show about nature in Great Britain. You know, people say, well, there's not much there. He said, no, there's plenty of things here. And, and uh, so I recommend uh, that if, if you have access to it uh, at this point or any any of his things all the way back to the early 70s. Whatever he touched was, was just wonderful. And, yes, your podcast extra?
2: Mine is not on topic. Um, apologies, Pete, but um, it's another book by an author that I think I recommended in the last podcast, uh, Fiona McIntosh. Um, the book is called Mirror Man, another murder mystery. And um, I've successfully read another book in a week, so it's been a good couple of weeks for me, Pete. How about you?
0: Well, mine mine is on topic, and Doug, I hope you will uh, um, give me some tips on this. But I've I've got um, a part share in in the country, and one part of the property has got. Uh, Doug, do you know grass trees? No, I don't. They're they're these crazy looking, um, I think they fed the dinosaurs. They're that old. They've got these spiky long leaves. They're particular Australian things. They've got this stump. They they grow about a centimetre a year. They regenerate with fire. Uh, Their core is protected from bushfires. And fire actually is very good for them to flower and things. But and and we've got a section of the property where these crazy looking uh, grass trees, um, Australis grass tree, I, I would pronounce it in Latin, Doug, but i would just been embarrassment. But um, <laughs> so they're, they're very slow growing and they've got on they have these the, the leaves aren't spiky, but they the dry leaves look like thatch and they hang down. And mm-hmm. what happens is this spike. Grows out of the top. It's a wooden wooden thresher uh, space or something, but it grows out, and the seed is on top of this wooden spike that grows. It, it, it's quite primitive. um
3: I think I've seen pictures of them, but I'll have yeah, to see they're, them.
0: They're, they're also you can't call them black boys anymore, but some people <laughs> used to call them that. I'll just say that, but. Um, uh, they're, they're quite a distinctive Australian plant. And I'm setting myself a challenge, Doug, of actually growing the, some from seed. Oh. They, they take 10 years before a trunk forms with the seeds. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, Great uh, challenge. So, so, <laughs> so, Jess, I'm just doing lots of research about grass trees at the moment. And so that's my podcast extra.
3: Wonderful. So find out what depends on them. What 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 eats them? What, um, what I, I, biodiversity I, do they support? That's what I'd like to know.
0: What do they support? Well, they're great pollinators. They've got um, with their spike. I don't think kangaroos eat them. the The leaves are very, uh, they're very long. They're not they're not thorns or anything. They're Mm -hmm. they're very hard, um, uh, quite coarse, long leaves. So they're not flat or round leaves at all. They're they're just long, like like bits of spaghetti. Uh-huh. they've been very firm so i don't know what they support but their root system is incredible they've got some sort of symbiotic relationship with a fungi in the soil sorry jess this is going a bit too technical now but they're a crazy looking thing doug so if you come out to uh, australia victoria i'd love to take you around the place and show you uh the different uh, species we've got and um, kangaroos everywhere and, um occasional koala so we'd, we'd love to have you as a guest out here doug
3: well thank you be careful i might just show up
0: <laughs> great stuff
3: all right jess thanks so much doug for
0: being part of for the program and thanks listeners for listening to our uh, podcast and thanks again jess
2: thank you thanks Pete. thanks doug for your time it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you
3: well i appreciate the opportunity
1: thanks for listening If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn, or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.